Welcome to your Buzz Rant and Rave podcast. I'm Andrew Raff. I'm Amy Watts. And I'm Dan Suter. Tonight, we're here to talk about the year in pop culture. It's the it's end. The it's, it's getting to the end of 2013. It's a wonderful time to look back on the last 12 years of sheer brilliance and other stuff that we've enjoyed. Well, I mean, or not just entire things, but maybe aspects of things. That's that's the tone my personal list took. Well, and I'll say that for me this year, it was all about television. I did not necessarily see that many movies this year because not that many caught my attention or interest. And of the ones that did, most of them I was kind of like, eh, that was okay. I mean, I didn't give anything higher than an eight that came out this year on a really? scale. Not yeah. the new. Now, the, I don't feel like I've, I, I don't feel like I saw more than two movies in the theater this year. Well, I've oh, only wow. apparently I've only seen like five that were released this year. And it's not I that mean, there there aren't ones that I've wanted to see. I just haven't prioritized going to the movies. I've probably well, seen at least a dozen, but that's mostly because. There's nothing to do on Saturday mornings, and they start movies at like 11.30 where I am, and it's like $3 cheaper. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing is we have a movie theater here that's only two fifty for any showing any time. And, you know, I still haven't been that persuaded because I'm just like, oh, that's a 15-minute drive. I can't be bothered, you know, and it's just... You know, so movies haven't been where it's been at for me this year. But I, when we, I don't know how we're going to organize this, but I'm all over the television this year in terms of how I spent my pop culture time. Yeah, well, I'd say for me, movies are just so long now. It's so rare that there's a, a well crafted 90 to 100 minute movie. Everything is at least two hours, at least like two and a half hours more, more so. And I'll tell you, a, like three to three and a half now. I will tell you a very good. 90-minute movie that I just watched in the theater was Don John, and I liked it a lot, but it's, that was, you know, it's a second-run theater. It'll be out on DVD December 31st, and I recommend it. That was one I wanted to see, but didn't see. That's, that's, that's the entire tenor of my pop culture year, in that I, this is my first year uh, post-college with, like, a 9-to-5, 8-to-5 job, and this is probably the least engaged with pop culture. Like, I haven't read a single new comic book that came out this year. Not a single. <sighs> I know. I know. Heresy. Um, I'm so far behind on music. Like, I listened to the Kanye album, and I listened to kind of whatever popped up on the radio, but I haven't listened to Haim or whatever they are. Like, I'm excited about that. I can't wait to listen to it, but I'm, it'll wind up being my favorite music of 2014 because I didn't get to it this year. I feel like just yesterday... We were all fighting about what the song of the summer was, whether it was Get Lucky or uh, Blurred Lines, and now it's the end of the year. I like the last six months has gone pretty quick. Well, and I have to say, this year, nothing. I haven't really been caught by anything musically. Um, like there hasn't been for me a great new band or a great new album that I just feel like I have to press on everybody. Oh my God, have you heard of so and so? Oh my God, have you heard this? And it may not be that, I mean, I'm sure that music is out there. It's just for whatever reason, I'm not coming across it. 
this you know, year. No, I think that that this just felt like a very down year music-wise. And it's not that there wasn't good stuff. And I'm, I have a few selections of stuff that I really enjoyed. But also, also part of it is I subscribed to Spotify starting about a year ago. And so since then, I haven't actually spent money on buying records except for, you know, a few friends, bands whose records I, actual physical LPs I bought. <laughs> and I'm with downloads. you on that. And and I have, I actually, as much as I love Spotify, one of the things about it that I think has been limiting for me is I make, you know, these tremendous long playlists in there for myself. And, and then that's what I listen to. And yeah. so there's, that's limiting the sense of discovery. I have discovered though that Spotify's radio feature um, is pretty darn good. They've been improving it, uh, and as far as I can tell, I mean, I'm a premium user, so I don't know if this would be true if you're a free user of Spotify. But uh, there's no limit to the number of times you can skip songs like there is on Pandora. Oh. Yeah, so, I'm, like, if you pull up a station and they play you three bummers in a row, you don't have to listen to the fourth bummer. Because you have to wait until the next hour to say thumbs down again. Yeah, I believe that is a limitation of the free Spotify radio because it, okay. it, it has to do with the way that royalties are paid out for what is an interactive stream versus what is a radio streaming, digital radio streaming. And okay. it's kind of a different royalty structure for each. Well, I mean, the, that's uh, I feel I always feel guilty when I'm left out of the loop. I actually get stressed. Like, I'm like, oh man, I've, I haven't read any of the DC New 52 or I haven't listened to this album. And, you know, so at a certain point, I, I mean, I've never had to face this before because I've always had more time than anything else. But how do you learn to like, let go of the fact that you're not gonna be able to be in on every conversation? Pick your battles. I mean, <laughs> honestly, uh, you know, don't feel but, obligated. Uh, this is so funny because this is tying into something that I just put on Tumblr, the other, that I reblogged on Tumblr the other day that was talking about how long do you give a book before, you know, do you always finish a book you read or do you, can you give up on it? And I think, I know Dan, you and I have talked about this before in some form, yeah. whether it was podcast or Twitter. And um, I never give up. <laughs> well, and I like the advice my library school professor gave of subtract your age from 100. And that's how many pages you have to read before you're allowed to give up a book. Oh, uh, because I think that's... you need to no Here's the thing, though. I think you need to normalize that with some amount of book length. Like, no, no. So I think it's beautiful because it, it, it directly addresses the fact that the longer you live, the less time you have to read stuff you don't like. And so I think, you know, it's great. And it, it on Tumblr, it made me link to uh, Linda. I linked to Linda Holmes' excellent piece about oh, how okay. you'll just never be able to watch it all, read it all, see it all, hear it all. And, you know, in that spirit, I found it so easy for me. I mean, I've never really been a completist, um, but I'm even better at it now. I'll just be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not watching that. Boom. Delete all the episodes saved up. Delete the DVR recording, you know, schedule, and I'm done with it. And it feels wonderful. Getting back to music, though, I feel like this was a year when people just sort of did what you expected. Like the Katy Perry movie, eh, movie, the album, it was fine. Like all the big pop albums, other than the new Beyonce one, have kind of just been fine. They were what you expected. The National put out like 
a very good album, but it's like a just like a probably the third best national album. Same thing with um, uh, Frightened Rabbit. You know, they they put out another great example of their dour Scottish mope rock, and <laughs> it's great. I love it. It's perfect, but it just is what it is. And I, you know, much in the way that the NFL playoff picture has a lot of parody this year. I feel like it was just parody in the indie music world as well, you know, or the alternative or whatever we're calling it now. Parody in that world, like it, everything was just kind of even. Everything was just mashed potatoes all the way through. Well, I'll say that I I got this year really in not into, but I found myself listening to a lot more top forty than I have in in recent years. I mean, I was there's a station here that plays ten songs an hour. They're the same 10 songs. They just shuffle them up. And for whatever reason, that's what I was listening to a lot in the car this summer. Uh, you know, we were talking about the song of the summer, and I'm like, that, that's what I'm listening to. Which in previous years, you know, people would bandy about this idea of the song of the summer, and it would be contenders I had never heard because I was buried in, you know, a, an indie rock discovery mode. And therefore, not you know, had no idea what your average sixteen-year-old is listening to while she's putting on her eyeliner. I think that's one of the interesting things about where we are now in pop culture is that the most popular things are even more popular. Like I feel like pop music has been has been so much more pervasive now, and things like stupid reality television or even award shows are more watched live now than they were you know, five years ago because of Twitter, Facebook, whatever kind of social media thing is surrounding that. And I think that applies to to top 40 music. Yeah. Um, well, I also I think agree. that top 40 music has started swinging back around to a sound that I like. Uh, you know, I'm seeing the 80s come back in some fashion statements. Well, and- I mean... I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it, but I see some Fleetwood Mac on uh, on this playlist I'm looking at for Andrew, and Haim is like straight out of Fleetwood Mac. Definitely. And so, well, I mean, like to me, the Bruno Mars song "Treasure," which would have been my personal choice for song of the summer, it just didn't have the zeitgeist that the others did. But it, uh, let's not fool ourselves. It was Blurred Lines. That was the. Song. <laughs> Well, I mean, people it depends love, on whether it's the song you liked best or the song that had the most people, impact. I mean, people liked Get Lucky better, but Blurred Lines is by far the best song. But I don't think it was by far the best song. I think it was by far the, the most zeitgeisty. Of the two candidates, it was the best. I think, so, I think to an extent, Blurred Lines was the most zeitgeisty because of the controversy surrounding it. I See, I never, like, I can see why people would see that if, think that if they were reading the lyrics on paper. But when you, like watch the video and and listen to the song it's very obviously like three guys who are just a little too drunk just like sitting at a table and they're talking out their butts they're talking a big talk but they're not doing anything they're just hanging out with each other that's why there's not a female guest verse couldn't they have gotten janelle monet or some female vocalist to do a verse on that if it was like to me it's just three guys hanging out and bsing and that's why i didn't agree with although i could understand the criticism that it was date rapey I didn't agree with that criticism. If they're actually talking out their butts, I would probably find that more amusing. 
I think that I think that they are like I, yeah, okay, I, I really when you no, I mean, <laughs> well, like, not like literally Ventura. dropping trowel and using their sphincters <laughs> to make the sounds. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, no. I, 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 no, like Ace Ventura. <laughs> that's a gag in Ace Ventura. It's good. But I feel like Andrew, you you've come totally prepped on music. I feel like we should make way for you. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm, gonna I, I'm I'm getting a notepad right now so that when I have my thoughts, I'll write them down and I'll wait till you're done. Talking. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll do what I do at work. I'll approach this podcast in a professional manner rather than a <laughs> than a. I don't. I I would I would hate for us to become the Thirty Rock. PTI parody, sports shouting. <laughs> Quiet, you! <laughs> yeah, so I also kind of, uh, I will fully acknowledge that I forgot that I don't have the capacity to queue things up, so there's going to be some random music over parts of that uh, part discussion, and I'm probably going to okay. have to edit those out <laughs> and see Whatever. if it still holds together. But given that, uh, I'd say definitely the I'm on the song of the summer being get lucky side it's an I mean, acceptable argument I was and, gonna say my my favorite though was treasure and that's because it has that 80s influence like when I heard treasure I was like oh my gosh I can I can picture myself roller skating to this you know <laughs> and, and, and but you're hearing a lot of that I feel like coming around in I mean, like a lot of the pop artists that I've really enjoyed in the last couple of years, like Janelle Monet and, um, you know, some, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my example. By the way, the no, moment, I, but... I agree with you. I, I mean, the, the, the movement of music called Drill, which is what influenced Kanye West's latest album, uh, is basically a set, like a, a early 80s industrial sound. You know, it's industrial rock applied to hip hop. Well, and like what I, I mean, it's sort of that disco pop, you know, very synthesizer. I mean, by God, they're bringing the guitar back and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> so, so speaking of. It's all cyclical. Speaking of, let's listen to a all couple cyclical. minutes of uh, the Bruno Mars now. Ooh. Which did actually come out in 2012. Treasure did? Yeah, Unorthodox uh, yeah, Jukebox was released, I think, late 2012. Okay, I feel like that yes, song... Yes, it was, because when I was... Because was Locked Out of Heaven... Was single? No. No, Locked Out of Heaven was the first single. Yeah, and see, because... that's the one that's getting all the airplay. Oh, it's awesome. Like, that gets awesome. way more airplay, and I, I like Treasure much better. So, are we all going to listen to Treasure now? Yes, yeah, so we're going to listen to about, uh, let's say, 20 seconds of Treasure now. So I have to say, Bruno Mars is one of my favorite young new artists, even though he doesn't seem so young. Uh, I think, isn't he like 30? Just about. But he's been around for a while, starting from his time as a young Elvis impersonator, including in that <laughs> Nicolas Cage movie. Honeymooned Vegas! One of my favorite cheesy movies! <laughs> Where it, with the parachuting Elvises. Blind Elvises, Utah chapter. Yeah. 
You guys know Bruno Mars is playing the Super Bowl this year, right? Indeed. I'm telling you, he's going to play Locked Out of Heaven, and it's going to bring the house down. That is a jam. That is a monster jam. Although it's it going to be, it's going to be when it's snowing, at because Springsteen had the or Bon Jovi or anyone from New Jersey had the sense not to play outside in the Meadowlands in February. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> you mean an open air stadium isn't going to have good acoustics? I wouldn't say it's the acoustics that are the issue. It's more of the being frozen. You know what they should do? They should have prints on backup because, I mean, the man <laughs> played in a freaking hurricane when it was in Miami for his Super Bowl, and he is so hot, he would just melt the snow. Like, there'd be a little force field around him that you would just see the snowflakes kind of sizzle as they came toward him. And he's a Twin City guy. He probably has a guitar shaped like a functional shovel. So, and he's I, so little, we could just put him in a mitten if he gets cold. I do, I do agree with you, though. I mean, it's just the year of, like, warm, like, major-keyed pop music, like, very, like, jazzy drums and, and kind of kind of funky guitar. It is good. I think it's a good movement for pop music. Well, and, I'm and so glad of... we're out of the guys with guitars that I can't quite distinguish from one another, like Nickelback. Oh, the Hunger Dunger Dang. <laughs> but, uh, but no, you mean like, you know what I mean, like Nickelback yes. and yeah, the, uh, the, the Canadian butt rock invasion of the late nineties. <laughs> yeah, I, I call that, that that's means. how I, that's what I've always called it. I, I've called it, but see, that's the thing about the phrase butt rock. The minute you say it, everyone knows what you mean. I don't, I don't even know have to what say you mean. I just think it's hilarious. Tell me what it means. Oh, there's a long it's lineage of it rock. from you know Grand Funk Railroad all the way up through Nickelback. Why is it called butt rock? Because it sounds like it's coming out of your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's how that's how I always explain. Is there more explanation? I just thought it was something clever, like you know, it's like pop but rock, or something, you know. But yeah, no, no, it's because it sounds like ass. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to be fair, I see. I don't like butt rock, but at least it's better than <laughs> suspender core. At least it's better than suspender core. That's yeah, what that's, we're dealing with now. That's actually what I was going to th- say. That I thought you were going to say that you were glad we're out of the era of the, uh, I don't know how to describe it other than the pretentious Brooklyn, Athens, uh, oh, you mean the Silver Lake access of, uh, yeah, guys in bow ties and mutton chops and, well, not really mutton chops, but, uh, no, they've the got the, they've got it's the, the faux Amish look. mustache. Yes, the faux Amish look. <laughs> and yeah, very sensitive, uh, monster... quiet acoustic guitars. Oh, see, and here's the thing. Whiny uh, vocals. When I'm, when I'm being, when I'm, uh, being uh, pedantic and, and, but also insulting and tracking the, the course of pop music, I blame it on the like, mid-2000s, late 2000 queef core music with like Huba Stank and original recipe Maroon 5. Where Wait a it was minute, all... what did you what did you call it? Queefcore. <laughs> you guys are killing me. Like sensitive, really sensitive dudes singing about their feelings, but without guitars. No guitars <laughs> allowed. That's for Fallout Boy. And then and then now we get it this, and yeah, there are guitars, which is a little threatening, but there's banjo, which is like leavens it out. It's like the baking soda. It just makes it all rise evenly. And I will admit to liking exactly one Mumford and Sun song. And you can guess which one it is if you want, but I'll only listen to one of them. And 
of Monsters and Men and the Lumineers, uh, what, the minute I heard the Jimmy Fallon, like, clucking the cluckineers or whatever, the chicken ears, like, I could not stop laughing for about two months because that's how I always heard the Lumineers in my head. That's what they sounded like to me. And just now everyone got to hear them like I hear them. Yeah. So, yeah, so kind of where we are in the, the, the realm of pop music and what's popular in the indie NPR sphere is a little dancier. It's a little more fun. And going back to a couple minutes ago, when we were talking about the, uh, the little guy from Minneapolis, uh, Prince actually gets on one of these uh, tracks on this year's new Janelle Monet record, The Electric Lady, which is, like all of her other albums, pretty damn awesome. So uh, I'm going to play a couple of minutes or a couple seconds, because we're dealing with fair use, not licensing stuff here, for, uh, of Give Them What They Want featuring Prince. is such a great album it's got all kinds of uh these little interstitial things that she does great tracks great grooves and uh a bunch of interesting guest uh appearances uh, i actually uh, you know the term i i always hear bandied about with janelle monet is like chameleon like which you know i hate to resort to buzz phrases but on a lot of her stuff you know i've heard like Lil' Kim in, you know, you know, more like a traditional hip-hop. And then there, she was kind of more doing, like, in, if, if I'm listening to the same one that you, you, you have in your playlist, that was more of, like, an MIA-type like intonation and flow. And, you know, I, I think one of the thing that she's probably been most lauded for is her ability to just fuse genre. Not to, like, unite genre, but to just make it something new. I think really what makes her stand out is just she is a performer. She's kind of like that that James Brown thing where she's just always on and it's always working. Now, how does this album compare to the Arc Android? Because I haven't listened to this album. Um... So they're very they're very similar in certain ways that they have all these little bits in between songs. It all flows together. Um, I'm not sure that I've really. Uh, gotten into this one as much as the Arc Android or the Arch Android, however, it's with whichever it is, uh, just because of that I've been listening to stuff on Spotify and not necessarily synced it to my my phone as well. And where where I got the Arc Android, I had that in my iTunes and just listened to it pretty much nonstop for a month. Yeah, same. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is like there's a real convergence going on here between like the real pop 
world and the indie world into a dancier place. Uh, the new Arcade Fire album that came out this year, Reflector, is really dancey and uh, it's less anthemic than, less earnest than uh, earlier Arcade Fire stuff. And uh, it reminds me, it's just kind of a, in this same type of vein. You well, want to segue? I will uh, say the sorry. other, the, the weirdest collaboration of the year to me is um, Wake Me Up the Avicii song, but it's actually Aloe Black doing the singing. And I loved the pre I loved Aloe Black's previous album. I mean, it was like, you know, kind of an old school soul, but with a new twist, really sounding fresh. And then he's on this like country remix dance thing that is, it just, I would never have known it was him until he sang it live on Dancing with the Stars. And I'm like, what? And <laughs> You know, but that's a weird little thing of fusion, and at the same time, it's taking, you know, two genres where people like to dance. I mean, you, if you've ever been to a country and western bar, they like to dance, and taking soul and putting them together and making something. And so I think we are moving towards more where you dance because you're happy, because you're enjoying it, as opposed to dancing to get out your anger or to attract the opposite sex or something like that. And I think that's where I feel music is going is happy dance time. Which is, well, I, I, go ahead, Dan. Uh, I think it gets to like kind of the de genrefication of, of where we're of pop right now, because, you know, I mean, we all like to joke about L cool J and, and accidental racist and all that. But what you're looking at is the generation of people who grew up, with classic rock right next to hip hop, right next to soul, right next to pop music on their iPod. And there's not a distinction between them, between any of that, Tim. Like, all you have to do is look at the underground success of Girl Talk, a guy who cannot commercially release his music, but he, he plays, you know, a full tour schedule year because it's all mashups of classic rock and hip hop and of, and of, and of soul and, you know, gangster rap and some really creative stuff. And I, you know, that's, you know, I think that's what you you talk about Avicii, which I like. Who can classify Avicii? And I think that's part part of what he's going for. Exactly. But... So let's take a minute and listen to a a, a bit of this because I can't remember. I don't. I know the track by name. I'm sure I've heard it. So uh, the reflector track? No, the uh, Avicii track. Okay, I've definitely heard this. It's that song that yes. you've heard, but you had no idea what it was called. You had no idea who was singing it. And then when you found out the name of the band and who was actually singing it, it still didn't make sense. Yeah. I would <laughs> not have expected that that was Aloe Black on that. I did uh, not track. know that was Aloe Black, Amy. You just taught me something today. Education. It's beautiful. <laughs> the... Uh... No, it's it, it's all. I did not realize uh, who that was singing, and now that I hear it, of course, it's like, oh yeah, now I know. 
I, I see. What is Avicii? Is he the producer? I still don't know what he is. Is he a teddy bear? I don't know. So, speaking of that, uh, actually, uh, speaking of that, uh, one of the, the my favorite tracks that I've heard of anything that I learned from like All Songs Considered is a track called Ewok Sadness by a band called Marijuana Death Squad. <laughs> oh. And it's just, you know, it, this is just ridiculous, but you got to appreciate something that just goes full on ridiculous like that. Yeah, but that is in some ways the weirdest musical thing that I heard of this year that just kind of came out of nowhere was that Elvis Costello did an album with the Roots. <laughs> Wait, that happened? That happened. It's called Wise Up Ghost, and it's actually pretty awesome. Which, so, what's, is it, is it Elvis Costello on a Roots album, or the Roots on an Elvis Costello album? It's really a collaboration. It's not really either one of them doing their exact thing. It's what would happen if you sat down, Elvis Costello and the Roots, and they wrote some songs and made an album together. How do they even have time for that? They're on Fallon every night. <laughs> Apparently outside that one hour a night, they have lots of time to, <laughs> to well, write and record. Well, you guys know one of my favorite musical events of 2013 was the Prince Tribute Show at Carnegie Hall, and the Roots were the house band. I did not know that. I didn't know any of those facts. I've been off of Twitter with <laughs> Guys, I need to be on Twitter more. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna know all the cool stuff that happens. I'm getting old and out of touch. <laughs> I had never been to Carnegie Hall. That sounded like an excellent excuse for going, and it was a wonderful night. And not only were the Roots the house band, but sitting in with the Roots all night was Booker T. Jones. Oh, wow. I feel like at this point in time, the Roots are America's house band. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't object. Questlove has written like two books in the last, like uh, his 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 memoirs thing or like essay collection. Moment of Blues is getting crazy good reviews. He's really broken through into the zeitgeist. He was a judge on Top Chef. Yeah, I, I, wasn't that? Isn't that this week's episode? It may be this week's episode, which you may not have seen yet because it's Friday and you tend to watch it on Saturday. Hey, at least Justin's gone. That guy was a jerk. Yeah. He made a good beignet in, like, week two, and I think it carried him through. He destroyed his team in Restaurant Wars, guys. <laughs> and yet he didn't go home for it. Uh, it's because it's if you screw up the front of the house, you're totally going home because you have the least amount of time to put in your own dish. You have to rely on other people to do your dish. So generally, uh, chefs go super simple and be like, well, I got to make a dish that's mine but that no one else can screw up. And so you wind up making a lowest common denominator dish and being out front where everything's going wrong. So you, you end up uh, uh, screwed on both fronts. But that's just a little bit of meta Top Chef inside, inside, the, inside baseball, inside spatula, whatever it's called. So uh, let's just go back to the music thing for a second, listen to a few seconds of Walk Us Uptown off of Wise Up Ghost by Elvis Costello and The Roots because it is just that weird and awesome. Stand in the light of 
So it is just like you threw the two of them together and it makes sense somehow. I love the little funk organ flourishes. Yeah, that's a great little bit of that track. Well, you know, Costello was part of the Prince tribute. So I saw the roots back up, Costello. Yes. I, I so believe that's actually I feel where special. This, I believe that's actually where the genesis of this album happened. Ah, I wondered if it was before or after. Yeah, I my understanding I believe is they either met there or they met on uh, late night and uh, uh, Declan McManus, international art thief, asked uh, mm-hmm. asked the Roots if they'd be interested in collaborating, and they said sure. <laughs> well, uh, so is that is that uh, how far you wanted to go into music, Andrew? Yeah, there's uh, I think there's one other thing I'd like to play off of this, but that actually comes in the actually two of those come in the TV section. Oh, speaking of television, Amy, you mentioned that this was the year television took over for you as your prime mode of cultural consumption. Uh, what what was what was doing it for you this year? Actually, well, can I, we? I I think that's yes. a better segue to go into some of the other areas and close out with TV. If we oh. thought that was the best, because I, I agree that television by far dominated my interest in pop culture this year. I was well, going to say, we skimmed right past movies at the beginning, because we were well, all kind of a... like, eh. Then oh, we went off oh. into music. So here, my other, big pop, my other big pop culture pathway is books. Librarian, it happens. Um, and I uh, have been helped in that. If you don't mind, I'm going to plug another podcast I do, um, where we choose a movie and a book each week. And... Uh, so I'm forced to read a book every two weeks, <gasps> and I've found a You're lot of great books that way. Amy? Hmm? You're committing podultery. I am. Well, you guys never called. You never wrote. <laughs> and these other guys, they send me flowers. Um, and uh, none of the books that I want to mention. I think only one of the, one or two of the books I mentioned came out this year. Um, but if I could tell you one book that you should read that I read in 2013, it's Code Name Verity. Love, 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 love this book. And I, it's a book that I evangelize about. You know, every now and then you have one of those books that you just hand off to everybody that you say, you must read this. Um, and I don't want to say anything more about it except to say that it is about two young women in World War II, um, both British. Well, excuse me, one is Scottish. She would very much be upset with me for not describing her as Scottish. Um, and one's a pilot and one's a spy. And it's the story of their friendship. And it is page-turning and funny and sweet and heroic. And it's just wonderful. And it's very clever as well. Um, I've read it now three times and in in one year. And the... uh, it hangs together well. I'm going to say there's some interesting things going on with the narrative. And it's one of those books that could completely fall apart on a reread. And instead you pick up even more things to realize how cleverly the book was put together. Uh, so just, I, I will just plug Codename Verity and I won't, I, I, that, I'll, that's all I need to say about books for the year. So that was it for you? That was the one? Well, I can, I can give you some other titles. I read a lot of historical romance by both, Eloisa James and Sarah McLean. If you like smart women who get good sex while wearing petticoats, 
I recommend either of those authors. Um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette was extremely funny, but it's one that also came out last year. Uh, you Before Me, I believe, came out either this year or late last year. And from the cover and from the blurb, it seems like the worst kind of terrible lifetime TV chick lit. Blech. But it's actually much better than that. It's And it's very smart. And uh, it the story you're not sure where the story is going to go and where it does go is both heartbreaking and true. And I could not say enough good things about you before me by Jojo Moyes. And I just finished reading two boys kissing, which came out this year by David Levithan. I've read most of Levithan's work. He's wonderful. He usually writes in the YA genre. Uh, the thing you might know him from most is he co-wrote the book Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which was oh. you know, then made into quite a charming film. Uh, and it's based on a true story of these two boys who decided to set the who decided to break the Guinness World Record for longest kiss, uh, and it became somewhat of a you know vi- it went viral on the internet kind of thing. And so this is a fictionalized account of that true story, um, but they're only one of the stories. There are three other narratives that are weaving around um, this, all involving young uh, gay men, and you know either they're hearing about the kiss or they're in some way tangentially related to the kiss or whatever. And the four narratives are all being... Um, the transition between the narratives is a Greek chorus uh, that is composed of men who died in the AIDS epidemic. Uh, and so they're kind of coming in in between these narratives and commenting on the, the narratives themselves. And uh, it, it's just, it's funny, it's smart. Uh, the, some of the languages made me swoon uh, and just a, a very, very, very good book, and um, I recommend it highly. Two Boys Kissing by David Levithan. So uh, there, well, that's my there's my longer answer on books. Great. So I, I mentioned it <laughs> earlier when uh, when we were off air, but I read an embarrassingly few amount of books this year. I think I only read like six books this year, guys. Uh, it's that's a pretty low number for me, and uh, most of them were books that were not written in this year. Like I, I read Hyperion, which is a great sci-fi retelling of the uh, of the Canterbury Tales. It's considered a sci-fi classic, but it came out in like the eighties or the seventies, even I don't know. Um, but it had it had a moment that just like actually gave me chills at the end of the book. It's a great, it's like a great meditation on like the, the temporary nature of pop culture and and mythology and what it takes to ascend into myth. And it was like a great moment for me. Um, I, I read The Art of Fielding. I actually finished it like three days before the new year. So it's almost a year ago, but I will never not mention that uh, book when it's time to talk about books. And then, um, I don't know, probably the best new book I read this year that came out this calendar year was League of Denial, the uh, the book uh, accompaniment to the, to the uh, Nightline uh, or Frontline documentary, rather frontline documentary uh on the concussion ep- epidemic in the nfl and you know we're all nfl fans and i had long felt um you know squeamish about concussions in the nfl but uh, you know 
is reading League of Denial, it's really incredible. It's a great document of of institutional uh, malfeasance. I think is a great way to put it. Uh, it's it's a great look at science and anti-science and the way um, politics can distort science. And it's just so well reported, incredibly well cited. About I think eighty pages of citation. At least that's what it was on my Nook when I read it on my Nook. About there was about eighty pages of citations, and it was uh, it was just phenomenal and heartbreaking, like really heartbreaking. Like you know, never before have I read. You know, I didn't even cry when I read Brian's song, and this is the most I've cried at a football book. So. Yeah, now I, uh, after that's, watching and that, I read Alan Seppenwall's book, which I, I've read pretty much everything Alan Seppenwall has written. Oh, no, sorry. Please continue, Andrew. Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, watching League of Denial, the, the Frontlines episode, I felt incredibly guilty about being an NFL fan. And uh, that uh, you know, didn't subside for at least the first six weeks of the season when the Giants lost every game. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I have, I have a lot of, you know, I have one of my closest friends uh, experienced a bunch of concussions actually in high school, and I mean, this was we were on the team together, you know, our high school football did, but this was like 2005, and I remember specifically, uh, you know, a, he was concussed, and a trainer was like, "How many fingers am I holding up?" And we, uh, one of our coaches was an assistant coach was behind the trainer, like trying to help him cheat. And everyone thought it was charming. Like, yeah, we want him back in the game. We didn't know how bad concussions were mm. at the time. And this is my best friend. And I talked to him about it. He's like, yeah, it was pretty messed up. We did some messed up stuff. We got went back into games after getting concussed all the time. And it just makes you think about it. And we were just, you know, dorky little high school football players. These guys are way stronger, way bigger, way faster, playing way more football than we ever did. And, it, you know, it, it does make you question, you know, we, I think, People have always liked to say that, you know, blood sport in America has kind of become less popular, but I think we've just gotten good at putting pageantry on our blood sport. We, well, we've dehumanized it to a large extent that uh, so many of the players in the NFL are interchangeable parts. Outside of, you know, the, the three or four big stars in each team, the linemen, the, the tight ends, the special teams players are all very interchangeable. Even now, I mean, before before Calvin Johnson got his Nike commercial, could you have picked him out of a lineup? I couldn't have. I, he wore a visor. He, you know, he had one of those blackout visors, and you couldn't see his face. He might as well have just been a stat line in your fantasy football team. Which, yeah. by the way, congratulations, Amy, <laughs> for beating me. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know how in, in this league the number five and six teams ended up uh, in the final every, finals. Every year. The, at least you second know year in the role. Do you know why it is? It's because I, at the last minute, switched Nick Foles in for Tom Brady. The one week Tom Brady outscores him by the exact margin by which I lost. So Yeah, but but if I had put in, I debated on my tight ends between Clay and Gates. And I can't remember which one I did run, but the other one scored 20 more points on my bench. Mm. So we both had player decisions that, you know, bit us in the ass somewhat. I mean, I did win, but only by one point. No, Amy, I'm the only one who's allowed to hypothetically win here. Okay. I'm I the think, only one who gets... I think by this well, conversation, we're all week, losers here. And then the next week, I managed to thrash Adam because I, by the simple fact of having Jamal Charles. <laughs> oh. 
Hey, when I won the league in 2010, I had Jamal Charles. So speaking of books, Andrew, <laughs> what did did uh, did you have any notable uh, literary adventures this year? So going back through my records of what I've downloaded on my Kindle, uh, pretty much the only book that I read this year that was published this year was well, there, there are two. Uh, one was uh, Susan Crawford's uh, book about uh, the inter- uh, about internet access, whose name I'm blanking on. Uh, captive audience, which is actually a, a great read, very accessible, about the dangers of uh, monopoly and internet access, and how it's not a competitive market, and it's something that really makes a big difference as far as free speech and uh, just how much we connect with the world is through the internet today. And if you only have one choice in your town for internet service, you're not getting the benefit of a competitive market. And it's a great accessible look at why it's dangerous and how the market has led to that. Uh, the other book that I, the only other book that I've read this year, that uh, that was published this year was Nathan Rabin's Rabin's uh, "You Don't Know Me But You Don't Like Me." Uh, it's actually one of the few books I've written up on the blog here, because it was it was not everything I expected uh, to some extent because. His articles about going to the Gathering of the Juggalos at the AV Club have been the highlight of the internet for you know, the last couple of years. Absolutely. And I expected this great in-depth uh, pop sociology of the Juggalo and the Fish fan experience. And it was ultimately a very personal narrative and almost uncomfortably personal at times. But it was engaging and interesting and I really enjoyed it and I would say I haven't read that much this year not just of books published this year but just in general because I feel like so much of the time that I would have otherwise spent reading has been spent playing Candy Crush Saga on my phone (laughs) (laughs) your secret is out it's not really a secret because I have a I mean, pretty much everyone on my Facebook knows that I uh, pop up on that all the time, at least <laughs> sharing lives or getting lives or whatever. And uh, Andrew is one of the is part of is a member of the triumvirate that I use to advance to the next world. It's him and Amanda Schweitzer and uh, Randy Perry. Oh, my Randy's go-tos. in my Randy's not poor Randy. I hit him up too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know you play Amy. I'm gonna send you requests now. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a closet. I, I, like I don't ever let it post anything on my behalf to Facebook. <laughs> I think I've I've successfully managed to avoid doing that. But considering how far into the game I've gotten, and that I'm looking forward to someday just like finishing it so I can be done and not. There will be no finish. It'll they will never always end. Add on. I'm just hoping to catch up to where it is at one point and then be done with it, no matter how much they add after it. It's such a charming game, though. I, I like it. I like it a lot. It's your standard bejeweled match three, match four, match five type game. It, but it's charming, and the art is nice, and it's a great time sink. Yeah, it's... Uh... Now, see, I always turn off pretty much all sounds and music oh, and everything. Oh, of course. So I had played it for months before my one of my friends was like, I love the way the guy says stuff. And I'm like, what? And so I turned on the sound and, and like all those things that pop up on the screen that say like, awesome, 
Sweet. It's this dude with this totally cheesy voice saying that if you turn on the, the effects. I think I have to turn on the sound now, guys. You have to do it at least it. once because it makes so much more sense with it, but it's incredibly annoying. Because I mean, you'll get bored long. with it like very quickly, but it, then you get, listen to it enough so that then when you play it, you can just hear his voice saying it. So... Did we have any more on books? Because you guys said you didn't have any thoughts on movies. I have a lot of thoughts on movies. Go, Dan, go! The, so I actually... I, I, my two main forms of cultural consumption at this point are movies and television. And I actually think that while I do watch a metric buttload of television, I actually think I see the majority of big and or important movies that come out just because... I don't do anything on Saturday mornings and I can go to an early morning movie at, you know, 1130 in the morning and get out by two or even sometimes sneak into another movie without paying and uh -huh. see movies, see movies that I would never otherwise pay for. Uh, but I, I watched a bunch of documentaries this year that I really liked. And, you know, the one I haven't seen that everyone's talking about is The Art of Killing, which um, which is about. I believe it's a Cambodian. It's about a genocide, and it's supposed to be amazing. But one of my favorites, because I'm a sucker for movies about uh, documentaries about bands, is a band called Death. Um, so imagine Anvil, the story of Anvil, if it was about like a in a proto punk band in Detroit, not called the MC5. Actually, three years before the MC5. Uh, Produced by uh, three African American siblings, it, it's a great movie. You know, it it's a great movie about family, not just about music. It's actually a little light on the music because I don't think the music actually holds up that well. But it was important at the time, or rather, it wasn't important, but it was a sound that became important, and it's mm. it's fascinating. And then Blackfish, which was a uh, not about uh, Edmure Tully's uncle Brendan Tully, <laughs> but but it was instead Nerd. about. <laughs> Blackfish was instead about um, uh, killer whales in captivity, not just at SeaWorld, but across the world. And it's fascinating. It did what the best documentaries do and take a tiny little world and a tiny little issue that I knew nothing about and blow it up into something huge and interesting and riveting. And I loved that. Um, and so I, as far as the big blockbusters go, I'm not going to lie. I love Pacific Rim. I think Pacific Rim was amazing. It promised you robots punching robots, and it gave you robots punching or robots punching monsters, and it gave you robots punching monsters. It 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 was the truest advertising of all. It, you know, it kind of suffered from a little bit of Avatar syndrome, dumbing it down, explaining it for the audience, but it was good. I liked it. Um, hey, sometimes the dumb movie is what you're looking for. Uh... There was one day over the summer where I had some time. I wanted to go see a movie. I wanted to see a dumb movie. I went to see The Fast and the Furious 6. It was dumb. There were explosions. There were car chases. It was it was perfect. The uh, Oh, I you know, I actually heard good things about the last uh, Fast and Furious movie because apparently they've just gone in a total, like, pulp direction as opposed to, you know, feigning seriousness and plot. Yeah, there was no attempt for it to be serious or emo uh, it did try to be emotional. They did bring characters back from the dead that would have meant something if you had seen any of the prior five films. But uh, it was a fun movie. It was like 
it had a lot of like what you expect from a uh, I don't know if it's like a late Connery or early Moore James Bond with just kind of the ridiculousness of it. Capers, lots of capers. Yes, and you know, honestly, I had this realization a couple of years ago that. Even if I'm not in love with a movie, I can appreciate it because it's a key that turns a lock that opens up a vast realm of cultural conversation. So, you know, I loved the book World War Z when I read it back in high school. Then the movie kind of was like mediocre. It was uh, kind of soggy white bread. It wasn't bad, but it's not what I would want to eat all the time. But what I loved about it was the hilarious passive aggression that the studios and directors and or we're all throwing out into the media before it came out. It's like they were priming the pump for it to be a huge failure. Mm. That way they were like they were like campaigning as to who would take the blame. And I loved every second of it. Is World that... War Z mediocre movie. The faux controversy in the lead up to it about all the script changes and the rewrites and the Lindelof rewrite and the and Brad Pitt not getting along with Mark Forrester. Who would have uh, not Mark Forrester? Uh, whoever it was. It was just hilariously passive-aggressive and great. Uh, Iron Man 3. Who would have thought pairing Shane Black up with Robert Downey Jr. would make a great Christmas movie? <laughs> it's now my second favorite uh, Shane Black-Robert Downey Jr. Christmas movie of all time behind <laughs> Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, but Iron Man 3 is a great movie. I, You know, what Marvel has found, I, they've hit onto this amazing formula and it's giving people who can write good dialogue access to people who can deliver good dialogue, like Shane Black and Robert Downey Jr. and Joss Whedon and, uh, and uh, well, Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr. Jr. and Scarlett Johansson. And frankly, Mark Ruffalo and Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth, and they, they cast those movies really well. Um, Thor 2 was fine. I thought Thor 2 was good, but I'm not going to talk about it. Um, I saw the new Star Trek movie, and I was admittedly a little drunk when I saw it, but I, I thought it was good if a little bit, like, connect the dot, too, too plotty, very much plotty, but what I loved about it was the conversation that I had with my dad after. Now, my dad is an old-school Star Trek fan. He has seen all the episodes a dozen times. He would watch them in the, on the first run when he was on leave from the, from the Navy. Um, and he, I, you know, he's a lot, we've watched all the movies together and I called him after I knew he had seen the movie and I had seen the movie and he was like, so, uh, did you, that, that twist about who, uh, about who that actor was, uh, the, he was, that he was Khan, spoiler alert, that he was Khan. I was like, yeah, dad. And to be fair, pretty much everyone in the world knew that it was Khan going in, right? That, that Benedict I can't Cumberbatch believe that you Khan. spoiled it. It was Con! <laughs> my, but my dad was like, "Oh, I was so surprised. I, I didn't know. I had no clue. It was such a pleasant surprise." <laughs> and it was, it was nice that that gave me that moment with my dad of like, you know, sci-fi has always been a thing that my dad and I we have a great relationship. But that's been, always been something we've done together. And I, I want to thank J.J. Abrams's lens flare for giving <laughs> me and my dad um, another chance to to bond across the generations. Um, a lot of there was a lot of great indie small indie movies this year. Um, in a world written and starring Lake Bell, who is so talented and funny. Uh, the To Do List, which is incredible, an incredibly sex positive female driven comedy. Which, I mean, uh, I'm so mad that Scott Porter's Soul Patch is not getting a in a, 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 
Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Porter's Soul Patch, Jason Street's Soul Patch was amazing in that. Um, I love Scott Porter. <laughs> the way way the way way back was like you know, like a a poppier version of Adventureland, but it was like affable and fun and nothing stuff doesn't have to be dire all the time. And um, wait, the way way back something? was that the Tony Collette? Yeah, Steve Carell. It, yeah, it, but they they weren't film. the star, but they weren't like the star, they were barely in that. No, I just there was there were a lot of movies that kind of came out that meshed together titularly for me and and that was one of them and i saw that movie and i was only whelmed by it yeah i mean i'm not saying it's a great movie what i'm saying is it was affable and it was like 98 degrees out that day <laughs> and so i spent an hour and a half in the air conditioning and it was good um that's the linda holmes joe reed air conditioning theorem mm -hmm. um much ado about nothing joss whedon's much ado about nothing it was fine I think the kind of much like white girls singing mournful hip hop covers on the internet, like modern recontextualizations of Shakespeare are a little played out at this point. But what it did remind me was how many Shakespeare plays rely on slut shaming as a plot device. So thank you, Joss Whedon. Um, Drinking Buddies was this tiny little movie, and it was like mumblecore and totally improvised. But it made Olivia Wilde really interesting and likable, which I had liked her in a lot of stuff for a while, but this was probably the most human I'd seen her because she's really a fembot. Like, she's designed to be a fembot. And this was a movie that actually, like, made her really, really grounded. And also, Jake Johnson's in that movie, and Jake Johnson is my soul animal. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, The Man of Steel, or Man of Steel, uh, super superman reboot 2 gratuitous violence boogaloo um I, it was so hilariously tone deaf and awful and missed the point of superman that i adored it you adored it, was, it for that reason oh the, okay so there's a moment at the end of the movie where spoiler alert zod and, and zod and and uh and superman have been fighting for about an hour destroying metropolis just just laying it to waste and they're literally standing in a burnt out crater like the size of a football field where they're building, there were people there two hours ago and now everyone's dead and they're standing there and Zod is seemingly defeated and Lois Lane runs up to Superman and in this exact tone of voice says, thank you for saving us Superman without a hint of irony at the fact that millions of people were just obliterated. Like no one got saved. That city is toast. Thank you for <laughs> saving us Superman. Ugh. But I will say, what I actually unironically enjoyed about that movie was Michael Shannon's go-for-broke, batshit performance. Like, when he is screaming, I will rebuild Krypton on your bones, like, I, like, Michael Shannon can blow the door off of anything. I love Michael Shannon. Um, I saw The Great Gatsby in theaters on opening weekend, and I admired its ambition, if not anything else about it. I admire... Baz Luhrmann's uh, commitment to bat shittery. It's, it's, um, and I really like the soundtrack, you know, all you got to do is throw some uh, ragtime under a, under a Jay-Z vocal. And I'm, and I'm kind of okay with that, but, and, and to close out the year, uh, you know, I think we've kind of forgotten about it because it was a couple months ago, but this was the year of Sandy Bullock. I know we've said that for a couple of years, you know, this is the year of Sandy Bullock, but this was the year of Sandy Bullock. She succeeded in the heat 
which is a populist, crowd-pleasing action comedy, and Gravity, which is essentially a nerdy art film in space. So what can't Sandy Bullock do? Uh, the Heat was hilarious. Paul Feig knows how to write women, knows how to direct. Um, Melissa McCarthy is a little, her shtick's getting old, but she's so darn likable. And, uh, you know, Sandra Bullock grounds that movie, and it's, it would be easy to be a buzzkill, you know, you know, Mick Bitcherton in that, mo- in that role, but she really made that role human, and Gravity was just incredible. Um, and Alfonso Cuaron, Dork, Children of Men is my favorite movie ever, of all time, of everything, and Gravity's pretty close on that list. I think the cinematography was beautiful, the way it let acting breathe, and, you know, there was a little bit of clunky exposition in the story, to be fair, but it was mostly on Sandra Bullock's side, and she delivered it well. Whereas, and I gotta say, George Clooney in that movie, no details about his life, but maybe one of the most fully realized characters of the year. So, and I know I just, that was a total alphabet soup of movies, but that's, I saw a lot of movies this year, and uh, those are just some of the ones I enjoyed. Okay, well, I, Gravity is up in the list of things that I would like to see. And while you were talking there, I did look up on uh, the internet and was disappointed to learn that Superman 2 and Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan did not come out in the same summer, in the same year, and then be remade in the same year. But uh, they were close. It was one a was year six apart. And one was nine. Oh, yeah. really? Were they that close? Yeah, 19. Uh, uh, Superman 2 was released June 19th, 1981, according to Google. And uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, was released in 1982. Oh, wow. That is some top-notch research. <laughs> that would have been, that would have, I mean, it's close enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call that weird <laughs> remake synchronicity. The, but, but the, I mean, I don't know. I also, one of the things about, I watch so much television that it's really hard. I have a special Google calendar to help me remember what shows are on what day. So, I you, you know, know there's this, mo- this technology that exists now called the DVR, where you don't need to remember which show is on which day. You just it, go to your TV see, and see no, what's no, there. No, no, he's from the younger generation where they use the technology of why would I pay for TV? Ah, we're cord yes. cutters. No, 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 no. We're cord cutters. So we have a my room. Me and my two roommates between us have a Hulu Plus subscription, a Netflix subscription. And this new technology that you being a New York person, Andrew, you've probably heard of called Aereo. Yes, being a New York person uh, Aereo and a copyright is lawyer, I've definitely heard of this. semi-quasi-legal. It's technically legal by the courts. Yes, it is It is illegal. Uh, well, Aereo... For now. Aereo, Aereo is in Denver. So we, it's a, it's a, we, you get all the free over-the-air stations that you would get with an antenna, but you get them in HD... And you get them, uh, there's a DVR attached to it. So I can DVR all the network shows, but not any of the cable shows. And it's just kind of like, you know, I don't have all that much time (laughs) anymore. I can't just like skip class to watch the entire series run a frisky dingo on a whim. So, but I, movies, I can go in, get out. Even, I mean, I'll watch movies for four, four to six hours on a Saturday because I don't have anything to do on the weekends. So I don't have a, a dog or, or a girlfriend or any, any time commitments. So I can just go to, go to the movies. Uh, I'm not a big college sports fan, even though I live in, in uh, Boulder, CU Central. Don't but, say that so, in public. 
I I know they're they're pretty serious about their buffs here. I've gone to a couple of games. They're they're pretty fun. But so so was there were there any other large uh, medium headings before we pivot to what you guys thought was the best of the year? I'm not going to recreate my amazing segue from earlier. You'll just all have to. <laughs> You'll just all have to remember it and bask well, in its glory. Well, is there anything rep- on the? Uh, is there anything internet culture that you guys thought was really spectacular? Uh, whether well, it was a I... meme, uh, a show, or Jimmy, a Jimmy podcast. Jimmy Fallon's YouTube channel. Jimmy Fallon's YouTube channel. Well, can I add to what? Uh, I want to say something in response to Daniel's movies, which is that I saw a lot of the same movies he did, and I just kind of came out of all of them going, eh. And and that's my reaction to movies this year. And I mean, like some of the ones he mentioned, I'm like, oh yeah, I did see that. I had forgotten R- it retor- even existed. And and that was kind of my general movie feeling this year. I have this weird feeling, and I'm gonna get grinchy about it later about what year end, what best of the year means. But all the best movies of the year aren't widely available yet. Like, I want to see Inside Llewellyn Davis really bad, but it's not coming out until, like, it's not in Denver, the Denver area yet. I really want to see Nebraska, but it's not in the Denver area yet. I really want to see, I don't know, all the other indie movies that are going to be Oscar-baity, and I'm a huge awards nerd, but I can't see any of the critically acclaimed, you know, best of the year. There's one place where I can see blue is the warmest color. So, and, uh, it, you know, it's... It's just like I, I, I'm sure once I see all those, I'll feel better about the year in movies. But I don't get to see those until like January. So anyway, sorry. Well, I mean, no, <laughs> I have the same thing. Like when I look at the movies that I rated in 2013, the highest, it were movie. It was movies that actually came out in 2012, but that I saw in the run up to the Oscars, and. I mean, I, I I hate the way studios do this. I mean, it's always been an issue that, you know, they try and hold the big releases until late in the year. But I just feel like certainly in recent years, they're holding them all. And with these kind of delayed rollouts becoming more popular, you know, kind of the tiered releases, if you're not in New York or L.A., you know, screw you getting to see it until, you know, two months after the critics have already decided what's best and worst. Yeah. Oh. It's very interesting so, to see. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Man- It's very oh. interesting to see that the Mandela film that's coming out now with uh, Idris Elba uh, got very quickly pushed into a into a much wider release than it was planned to be, because Mandela died. Uh, it was going to be one of these like one theater in New York, one theater in L.A. for two days before the end of the year, and now it's going out into fairly wide release, at least at least advertising-wise here in New York it is. But the weirdest thing is so many of these movies were screening in February at Sundance or January in Sundance. It's so bizarre. Like, Oh, I mean, the, they're the... ready to go out. It's just this weird way the studio wants to structure things now. Yeah, they're not willing to put out the effort. I, the movie business is so weird right now because they're the big major tentpole movies that they're spending you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on and marketing everywhere in the world that are scheduled to be in you know every theater and its its cousin whether it's the hobbit whether it's the avengers whether it's any kind of franchise cartoon or not bait and then 
for every other type of film, the interesting films, often the good films, they're not getting into wide release until it's established that they're going to be a success. And that path goes through the film festivals. They're pick, they go to the film festivals, they're picked up by a distributor. Distributor starts it in narrow release in New York and LA for like two days in December. And then if it reviews well, it gets into you know that next tier of cities like Washington, San Francisco, whatever. And then if it does well at the Oscars, it gets into broad release a year after it debuted at Sundance. And, I, you know, I feel like there's this other weird class. It happens a lot with indie comedies, and they get that a really tiny run. But then they blow up on video on demand on, like, Netflix, and, and then they get this cult following. But it feels like that's the role. Like, you go to Sundance, you get well-reviewed as an indie comedy, and then you wait for, like, a year and a half until you get out on, uh, on, on Netflix. That happened with Hesher. Hesher is a weird... Fucked up movie starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as like a magical drifter with a heart of gold, but also a heart of murder. And he's and it's got like it's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, oh, what's Queen Amidala? Oh my gosh, Natalie Portman. I forgot her name for a sec. And it's kind of amazing. And we go first is Queen Amidala. Uh, I was I one consider his age. One, I was a huge Star Wars nerd when I when my entire life, but especially then. And two, uh, I was like 12 and 13 and 14 when those movies were coming out. Well, I was like 10 when the first one came out. But it was kind of a formative age for me. Yeah. So, uh, the, but yeah, I mean, I feel like there's this, and it didn't, the movie didn't come out until like a year and a half after it was at Sundance. And I just feel like so many of these movies would find an audience, and it, they don't even have to be on the big screen, because with Twitter and, and buzzword social media, blah 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 you can you can really push your own projects through your own brand like you know that's how joseph gordon levitt has his own variety show and i'm sure that it will work you know he is the one man alive other than justin timberlake who could make a variety show work on his own and it's going to work and it's all because of his own brand yeah and that that happens like like everyone i know has now seen jiro dreams of sushi on netflix whether that was ever in the theater who knows but it's possible, like all these small films get out now. And there are other things like uh, Knights of Bad Astum, the, uh, the LARPer movie starring Peter Dinklage and uh, yeah, a bunch I, of other people. A, isn't, that a, isn't that a David Gordon Green? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, uh, I don't remember, it's, but it's been sitting in development hell for about two years now. And it's been done, it's been shown at festivals, I think, or it's been ready for that. And you'd think that it would be successful and it just hasn't made it out of the vaults their their official twitter account followed me on twitter like a year ago <laughs> and it was just like what is going on like why hasn't this come out yet there's already been a successful larping movie guys uh uh what is it the the sean's the sean william scott uh paul rudd movie role models role models i love that movie that's that's a larping movie it, yeah. there's a market there there's a market there people who love who like Game of Thrones and role models. There's a huge cross-section there. 